Welcome to the Responsible Finance Podcast, the official podcast of the Responsible Finance and Investment Foundation. I am Blake Good, the CEO of the RFI Foundation, a global nonprofit organization working to build awareness, promote research, and encourage convergence in the responsible finance industry, including socially responsible investment, ESG, Islamic finance, and impact investment. The purpose of the Responsible Finance Podcast is to connect you to the leaders behind innovative approaches to creating positive social impact in responsible finance. This month, I'm very excited to be interviewing Inge Rauf, Head of Sustainability and Strategic Relationships of the ERA Foundation, who has also recently joined the RFI Foundation Board of Trustees. Inga's career has been guided by the global dimensions on human rights and how women can play an important role in the process of peace building. With this focus, her career has included stops consulting for the United Nations, executive roles in the private sector, and founding a number of nonprofit organizations. She was senior advisor to the elders, a group of senior statespeople, including Kofi Annan, President Carter, Gro Brundtland, and others, during the landmark year of the SDG Agreement and Paris Accord on Environment. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome to the Responsible Finance Podcast, Inga. Would you like to introduce yourself? Thank you, Blake. Thanks for the invitation. My name is Inga Rolf. Um, I have a background in corporate strategy and in restructuring. And then I moved into human rights and development, particularly women's human rights when I was asked to restructure a not-for-profit and I just realized how important women were to the whole system. Um, since then, I've had a very interesting career. I wouldn't say it was deeply planned, but um, lots of wonderful opportunities, including living in the Middle East, um, being the, helping to set up a group called The Elders and being their uh, senior policy advisor during the wonderful year that we had of the SDGs and the Paris Agreement. And then since then, I've moved into fintech. So um, that's a whole new arena in blockchain. And I guess my passion is to join the dots, which is why I'm now um, chief executive of a foundation in the US that does just that, tries to make sure that we join the dots if we're going to have any sustainability. That's great, and, and we're happy to have you also join as a trustee of the RFI Foundation, where we're also, I think, from a different, a different angle, trying to join the dots up within the, within the finance industry to, uh, to advance uh, the cause of sustainability and responsible finance. Exactly, and that's what really drew me to RFI, and I'm deeply honored to be on the board. Thank you. And from, from your bio, from your background, there's, there's a mention of, that you grew up in South Africa during apartheid uh, and left, left South Africa to move to the UK to, to get away from uh, the apartheid system. Uh, how much influence did, your, uh, did, your, did that experience growing up uh, shape the later work when you started moving into, into peace building? Well, it was a huge influence uh, um, as a child growing up in that environment, but also having very liberal parents. And my father was English, but my mother was Danish. And so we, it was inculcated in us from a very early age to have respect for people, irrespective of their color or status. Um, and we did have 
uh, maids in our household, but we were never allowed to <laughs> take that for granted. And we had to do our share too. And uh, in fact, um, our maids attended our wedding. Um, so from, from that was a really important growing up to have that inculcated. But more, more than that was as we got older, realizing how unequal the whole society was and how um, human rights really were everyone's responsibility. And so we got more and some of our closest friends, in fact, were locked up um, and others were very um, active in the anti-apartheid movement. Um, and we saw that the cost, the personal cost that standing up for human rights had on people and families. And then we also saw the importance of the diaspora actually in maintaining the pressure on government uh, around the world to put pressure on the South African government to change and to um, eradicate apartheid. And that was, that was also a lesson, you know, that diaspora power is not to be underestimated. And then I guess I, um, having left South Africa, I can re vividly recall the day Nelson Mandela was released. Um, and I will never forget either the conversation that was held in London between de Klerk and Nelson Mandela, because what it did teach me was there was a man who'd been incarcerated, but he still said that he knew that if he didn't leave his bitterness behind, um, he would still be in prison. And on the other side, you had de Klerk, who equally had everything to lose when he started negotiating to end apartheid and to release Mandela. And Yet he did it. He was also very principled. So it, it's a deeply moving thing when people put the common good ahead of their own interests. A lot of the work that you've done, particularly around peace building, has, has focused on, on this sort of uh, woman-centric uh, approach that if you don't include women in the process, then it's uh, less likely to be successful. And I think that has carried through into your work uh, in in business, what do you think uh, is lost where there's not that involvement of women uh, in the process, whether it's peace building, business, finance? Well, I think the voice of more than 50% of the population is lost. Um, so I, I'm absolutely convinced that we still, even though we have made improvement, we still have to focus on ensuring, particularly in peace building, that women are present. And yes, you're right. I was very involved um, through Womankind Worldwide and other um, organizations in the development of the Security Council Resolution 1325 that mandated having women in peace negotiations because just from a very pragmatic point of view, um, if women are not present in the negotiations where their constitutions and their rights begin to be framed, then they are very often um, at a huge disadvantage because to try and still put those into constitutions retroactively is very difficult to do. So you really set the framework, but more particularly, it's that women um, are the most affected generally by conflict. They're for the children, their husbands, they are, have often um, gone off to war. 
they lived with the elderly. And this is a generalization because I know that there are many women who are active in conflict and in creating conflict. But in the peace building framework, the tendency is to try and find solutions for the common good rather than try and find power bases. And that makes a very big difference to the outcome of peace negotiations. But you do need to have, first of all, enough women there, and you need to have women who are trained. And so, yes, that's been part of my work, has been in training women um, on the importance of, um, and how to negotiate, and the importance of being themselves, and putting their points of view, and being allowed to speak out. In business, um, just to, to segue, um, it's absolutely equally critical. I mean, that, that women have a voice. I mean, many years ago, I started the London Chamber of Commerce Women in Business Group because there were so few networks for women in London. Now, this is a long time ago. So, um, because at, at the time, um, you know, we were fighting for equal rights in the sense of being able to have some recognition that our roles were not purely um, the same as men. We also had often families and children and childcare, additional costs. And so it was a lobbying organization and also an organization to help, again, train women to speak up and to have a presence in business because they bring such a value add. Um, and they also now it's well recognized that women I mean, have a $20 trillion spending capacity globally. I mean, 60% of, of personal wealth in the US is controlled by women. And so that is immensely influential if we want to look at sustainable consumption. Um, and again, women and this is a generalization, but I'm seeing women and men are realizing that that uh, common good and caring for next generations will depend on the decisions and particularly the consumption decisions we make today. And in terms of, in terms of the evolution that we've seen uh, since, uh, uh, particularly with the development of the sustainable development goals, where there's an explicit inclusion that, uh, of gender inc uh, gender equality as a, as a priority, as a target. Uh, how, how has that changed the conversation? Has it become more embedded and more systematic uh, in the way that the business and, and other uh, humanitarian organizations approach, approach gender issues? Yes, I do think it has changed things. I mean, the actual process of particularly the Paris Agreement and the SDGs were quite consciously uh, much more inclusive uh, than the, for instance, the Millennium Development Goals were. Uh, having Christiana Figueres heading up the Paris negotiations with people like May Robinson, President of Ireland, uh, who was Special Climate Envoy, um, Rasa Michelle, very active in the SDGs, but it was a conscious decision to have women and a gender balance in all of the committees. And I do think that has, has actually shown through. And I don't think it's that recognized actually, but it has definitely shown through. In terms of business, yes, I mean, gosh, I see such a huge change from the time I started out and we set up the, the Women in Business Group. I mean, 
nowadays next gen do ex almost um, take for granted an equality in business. I, I accept that it's very different globally and it's not universal, but certainly huge changes. Um, women in positions of authority, women um, taking on very serious business roles, um, in the Middle East, women running very big businesses, um, much more networking akin to the way the sort of men's club used to work. <laughs> women are now very much more confident about networking. Um, and I do think it's, uh, it's actually almost uh, moving away from this sort of male-female thing. And I, what I see is that in this next phase, we're moving into the feminine and that's present in both men and women. So the, the men too, who are making their mark in purpose-driven businesses um, are working to the feminine qualities of the collective, about a compassionate action, about outcomes that are um, collaborative. Um, and that I think is going to be so crucial. And, the SDGs have provided quite an interesting framework for that, I think. And of course, the explicit SDG of having gender equality um, and women um, is being embraced. I also like the way that the SDGs are designed so that everything, uh, it, it highlights interrelationships between different SDGs. So it's not uh, looking at gender equality independent of other SDGs, but it gets embedded within, uh, within the multitude of SDGs. Uh, in terms of how your career has, has, has moved, it, it seems to be heading in the direction, you said it wasn't uh, very planned, but it's been heading in the direction of more involvement with uh, finance uh, and fintech. Uh, do you think that there's something unique about this part of the business world in terms of having an impact uh, to support the SDGs and to, to move the world towards achieving those goals by 2030? Yes, I mean, for me, um, being in strategy, I tend to sort of look to trends and um, looking at AI and the technology and the growth of technology, um, it's a huge trend that we absolutely cannot ignore. And um, it brings with it lots of challenges, but it also brings with us huge opportunity. So, um, and I think it actually can facilitate so much in relation to the SDGs and, you know, in, in terms of the global well-being too. Um, in terms of the role of business, well, if you think that conflict, according to the Institute of Peace and Economics, cost us somewhere in the region of $17 trillion last year, conflict and violence globally, it makes utter sense that we tie and contextualize peace and resilience and stable societies and business because business um, cannot succeed when there is huge inequality in society in the long run. And it also absolutely, we will not um, have thriving businesses if we destroy our environment. As technology has developed and, and artificial intelligence is, is being more and more uh, commonly used it seems like there's there's positives and negatives. How does is there a, a framework from the SDGs that can be used to to evaluate uh, 
good uses, productive uses from detrimental uses, do you think? I do think so. I mean, I think we're seeing the emergence in technology, particularly of blockchain, distributed ledger technology, um, the use of VR um, in very interesting ways and innovative ways to bring the SDGs to life. So I've been to several events where they've had immersion VR, where you actually could see yourself in a, in a um, refugee camp or you can be party to um, a, a situation that previously you experienced only through reading or film but in this immersive way it, you're actually there in a very visceral way so that's really interesting I think the other thing is with blockchain the efficiencies um, and the things that blockchain addresses um, are very exciting so um, efficiencies in terms of process. But when you consider too that a lot of our challenges that we have is because of lack of transparency and because of corruption, when you're able to transfer funds directly from point A to point B and know where those are, um, I think we're going to begin to see uh, the impact of that um, over time will be huge. And then there are so many other ways in which technology is helping in terms of, of environmental, being able to actually measure some of the impacts. And then we also, in terms of finance, creating platforms where um, the good that is being done and the SDG opportunities are beginning to be shown and the impact that they're making also being shown. So companies like Ixo, for instance, are using blockchain to um, to make accessible the impact that these SDGs are having. And I think the next move that I would like to see and I'm working on um, is how do we open up some of the larger financial instruments, the green bonds, the social impact bonds, um, which currently tend to be a quite a closed market and people in that loop sell to one another. And, but there is a real interest for a much bigger involvement of ordinary people in being able to use their money and direct their money in a purpose-driven way. So um, all sorts of interesting things in development. We're still a way off, I think. Um, there is, of course, on the flip side, real regulatory and rightly so concern um, of abuse of, this, of these systems. Um, so one has to build it quite slowly uh, to be sure that there is this, A, the security, and B, uh, that the, there isn't money laundering and it doesn't create more problems than it solves. The previous uh, role, I think, was with, uh, with Licky, uh working on sustainability using uh, blockchain. I guess we've seen a pretty much a full cycle of uh, excitement uh, over speculative activity and then uh, followed by a crash recently in, in cryptocurrencies. How have, have you seen the change in the types of people who are interested in that, the breadth uh, of interest, and how has, how has it, you've seen it uh, mature over, the, over that cycle? I guess what, what implications does that have for other, other uh, applications of, of blockchain, distributed ledger, uh, AI, uh, virtual reality. 
Yes, I joined Liquor because I was really excited that for the first time you had social and natural capital listed um, on an exchange that was tradable, that was tokenized and tradable and fully fungible. Um, so it began to have a, however imperfect process by which you could actually price social and natural capital assets. Because at the moment, we're still pricing things and um, pricing risk very, very inadequately because we're not taking account of the whole of impact. So we're not pricing externalities. We're not pricing what are called intangibles, um, precisely because it's difficult to do. Uh, so, so I do think that affords an opportunity to do that and then, yes, of course, I mean, whenever there's a, a lot of money to be made, people pile in and it's, there's a lot of hype and et cetera, et cetera. Um, so we knew that there would be a correction and that it was a bubble. But the underlying technologies of distributed ledger um, combined with AI and combined with um, smart financing, I think it's got enormous potential still. So as I said, things like um, supply chain, they're beginning to understand just how important that is in being able to have the provenance, for instance, say of foods and understanding and goods, uh, being able to verify those. And I think increasingly the purchasing public will want to know, and, and it's now affordable and a, a clear and transparent way to do it is using these technologies. I mean, that's just one example, but the other is also, for instance, in the financial world is now that to begin with, there was a lot of poo-pooing and, oh, you know, this is all, um, it's, it's going to blow itself out. But actually what is interesting is how much of the banks and the and collaboratives with, of banks 